Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Hello there, listeners. After over two years of recording and 80 plus episodes, I am elated to announce that Enduro Bearings has agreed to become a supporter of the Cycling in Alignment podcast. This is a double win for you, the audience. You have the opportunity to demonstrate your support of the show by making a purchase on the website cycling.endurobearings.com and you get to save some dollars while you trick out your whip. Use the code Colby Podcast to receive a 35% discount on any of Enduro Bearings excellent products. That's Colby Podcast, which is all lowercase and all one word. This includes the excellent XD15 ceramic bottom bracket, which is guaranteed for life. That means it may outlive you because, well, it's inanimate. Enduro also makes headsets, derailleur pulleys, as well as bearings for just about everything that rotates on a bicycle. So use your digits to make the keyboard mudras and head over to cycling.endurobearings.com and upgrade your favorite ride now. And remember, the proper number of bicycles is always N plus one, so think ahead. Thanks for listening. Hello there. Welcome to Cycling in Alignment. You're in for a special treat because this is episode number 100. That's significant because our society likes to count things in batches of 10. And 10 times 10 is 100 if my math is correct, although I wouldn't bet on it. It's hard to believe that I've recorded 100 episodes of a podcast. And it's also a bit hard to believe that it's taken me this long to do it. I don't know how long I've been doing this, but it seems like it's been a while. It's been like years. The first 50 or so I recorded at Fast Talk Labs. And I'm grateful for the opportunity they gave me to begin this project. They literally said, we're going to give you a podcast. We'll do everything. Just start talking. And I was like, okay. And that was pretty cool. But then we had to go our separate ways. Don't worry. It was an amicable divorce. And then I started working with my now tireless editor, Joel, and he's helped me bring the next 50 episodes to life. It was right around 50 or so is when that happened. That's rather tidy because that's half of 10. So what we've done for Cycling and Alignment episode number 100 is bring some relevant snippets, a compendium of different chunks of different episodes that I thought were a good reminder of where some of my conversations have gone. And they're all conversations with other people. I'm not going to go quoting myself all over the place. That just wouldn't be proper. So I have a bit of Paul Check's episode, which is number 18, where he unpacks the four stages of athletic development. The child, the warrior, the king or queen, and the master or the wizard, wise person, wise, wise man and wise woman, something like that. Then in episode number 61, I had a conversation with Matt Walden and he talks about the concept of attractor states, which I thought was a very good discussion. 
as well, I pluck a few key lines from my conversation with Ron Kochavar, which is in episode number 73. The title of that was called, was uh, Follow the Pull. And Ron's concept was about being pulled towards something instead of pushing yourself towards it, which I thought was a very simple and elegant way to think about the goals we have in life. Are we being pulled towards them? Meaning, is our heart telling us to do something or are we pushing ourselves towards something because society tells us or our parents tell us or our spouse tells us? In episode number 86, I spoke with Nathan Haas. The title of that episode is I Am Not a Bike Racer. And I don't know if this is Nathan's second or third podcast with me. We may have done four by now. Uh, well, spoiler alert, I've got one saved to release a conversation with Nathan that I recorded while I was in Spain with him and it has not dropped on my channel yet, although it has dropped on his channel. So if you want to cheat, you can go there and listen to it on his channel. But then you have to go to listen to it on mine also to make it fair. Nathan and I recorded that conversation on the way to the steamboat gravel race. And at first we just kind of dorked around and then we got into some good racing philosophy and discussions around training, training load and whatnot. And the final bit that I brought into this episode was from episode 91 with Michael Holt. It's titled Savage and Saint. And I met Michael at, I believe it was my IMS2, no, HLC2 course at the Czech Institute. That's Holistic Lifestyle Coaching Course, Level 2. Or was it 3? Might have been, I might have met him at 3. I think it was Level 3. In any case, we had a few conversations and he told me he had been teaching meditation for many years and I felt it was uh, a good moment for me to learn more about him and I eventually ended up taking a couple courses from him. So I thought our conversation was was valuable. Hopefully you will agree. I feel like I've had a lot of really valuable conversations with other people and also I'm very grateful for the opportunity to have the podcast and for my audience because I'm not just here speaking into thin air, talking about all the random ideas in my head for no reason or to have them reflect back at me from a computer monitor. I'm really trying to organize my own thoughts in a constructive way to help teach other people. That's fundamentally what I am. I'm a teacher. And without an audience, a teacher isn't a teacher. They're just a crazy person walking in the woods talking to birds. Although birds can learn too, but probably not much about bike racing, to be honest, or cycling at all. So if I'm going to be a teacher, I need an audience. And that's where you come in. So what I'm saying in a really roundabout, long-winded way is thank you for listening to my podcast. And while I've said often that I really don't have a goal of growing an audience, um, what I mean by that is I have no desire to have fame or status. I mean, I could crush Joe Rogan, no problem, but it's just not a thing I'm into, right? That was a joke. But I will say that I would ask you, or I will ask you, I guess I am asking you to share this podcast with people whom you think would benefit from it. This is how a teacher is effective. He or she brings their lesson to the world and that lesson is spread to other people and those people's lives are enriched. So if you are aware of someone who might benefit from some of my episodes, please send them to those people. And for that, I'm grateful in advance. 
I don't really like to ask things of other people very often, but there you go. So I hope you enjoy this compendium of discussions. And I will also say that putting this episode together was a bit of a chance for me to reflect on what I have covered. And I've got a pretty long list of things I would still like to cover in future episodes. If you have brilliant ideas about things to cover, you can always send me a message. In the past, I've used Instagram. Sometimes that seems to work. Sometimes it doesn't. You can also email me. You can find my email on my website, I think. I'm pretty sure. So if your idea is important, it'll make it to me. And thank you for your input. I do have some feedback from people who have written me in the past and offered good podcast suggestions and ideas, and I will be implementing some of those. I've also got some great conversations lined up with brilliant people, and hopefully they will continue to be of interest to you. That's what I got. Enjoy the episode. Thank you for listening. Pedal consciously and pedal quickly. Paul, check. To figure out who they are. You know, what is what is it that I'm good at? What is my what is my capabilities in anything? You know, by the time they're athletes, they're usually entering into the, the warrior stage and, and becoming a teenager means to reject your parents, which overflows into any authority figure. And so what they do is, is they tend to read magazines that have some kind of article about how so-and-so eats. So how does the top triathlon guy or the top guy in their sport eat? Mm-hmm. And they don't realize that eating how somebody else eats would be like just because your neighbor has a, a diesel engine in their car and you like their car, you put diesel in your car, but it runs on gasoline. The next thing you know, you're stuck and can't drive your car because it won't run on diesel. So it's really more like eye shopping, you know, oh, that looks good. I'll try it. But there's no depth of knowledge and they're also susceptible to herd mentality so if everybody's eating um you know uh whatever the bar of the month is they think that's what they should be doing so it's a fairly normal kind of a groping for figuring themselves out and for coaches it's a very tough stage but that's also one of the reasons that we need people like you out there have that have matured through these stages that they can have a level of respect for because in the hero's journey you would be the mentor and the mentor is the guardian of the gate meaning if you want to get into this if you want to get to the national championships then you better do what your coach tells you to do because you might be good and you might have the speed or the endurance or the raw ability But what you don't have is the knowledge to manage yourself long enough to not destroy yourself with the very skill that could make you a world-class athlete. Mm. So all the things that you're saying are true. And one of the challenges is that by the time they're coaching with you, they're often in the teenage stage of their development. And these stages don't have anything to do with age, by the way. Mm Mm-hmm. You can coach a 70-year-old that's in the child phase of their athletic development. Mm -hmm. So 
it requires the therapists or the coaches, particularly the coaches, to have enough knowledge of the psyche and how it develops. Because how the psyche develops plays itself out in everything that they do. Their sex life will be just like the way they ride a bicycle or run. How they manage money will be mirrored by how they ride their bicycle or run. How they relate to their parents, to their friends, to alcohol, to drugs. You can pretty much see that it's an echo throughout their life. Mm -hmm. That's sort of a general theme. Of course, there's always exceptions to the rule, but they're uncommon. So the thing that's so important with people in the first two stages, the child and the warrior, is that they need to have somebody explain things to them in terms that they can understand. And the big mistake most coaches and therapists make with these people is they tell them facts and they give them orders. You've got to do this or else. It's a fact that if you eat this, it's going to do this to you. And then they just say in their head, well, if that was true, how come uh, the top five racers in the world are eating um, such and such a bar and taking such and such a protein powder? Right. Not realizing a lot of those guys don't eat or drink any of that shit. They just pretend that they do to make an extra 10 grand a month from sponsorships. Mm -hmm. So the point I'm making is always remember the rule, tell them what they want to hear and give them what they need. <laughs> what they want to hear is how that's going to help them win, how it's going to help them succeed. So getting the gluten out of your diet will contribute to your dream of winning your next race and successive races and enhance your recovery because when you inflame your gut, and I use diagrams, we, these things need to be visual for them. And anytime you can do a demonstration for an athlete with their own body, you're far likely to get a better result because most athletes are kinesthetic dominant learners. Mm. They're, they're, they, they learn through moving, not by listening and not by reading and not by looking at pictures. So for example, I might say, let me show you something here. Put your finger in your belly button. Well, I'll have them start with me. I'll say, put your finger in my belly button and tell me what you feel when I bend over and pick up this dumbbell. Which direction is my belly button going? Mm -hmm. And they'll say, well, actually it moved inward, didn't it? And I'll say, yes, it did. Now stick your finger in your belly button and pick the same dumbbell up and tell me what happens. And they'll say, oh, wow, mine comes out. And I'll say, yes. And then I'll show them how, uh, uh, an anatomy chart of the transverse abdominis and say, this, is, this muscle pulls the two halves of your pelvis together to stabilize your, your sacroiliac joints, which hold your lumbar spine stable so that when you're running or cycling, you actually have a foundation from which your hip flexors and hip extensors can generate force. But I say to them, if this, these two joints right here is loose, and your spine is not stabilized, what's going to happen when you run, jump, or pull up on the pedals of your bike 20,000 times in a row trying to go as fast as you can? And they naturally look at it and say, well, I don't know. If it's too loose, something's going to move too much, and maybe something's going to get hurt. And I'll say, yes, and exactly what's going on with you right now. <laughs> right. 
So all of a sudden the dots start to connect. Mm -hmm. So then I say, okay, so the first thing we got to do is clean the following items out of your diet. And here's the, the, the specific exercise or exercises like the blood pressure cuff. A lot of athletes hate using the blood pressure cuff because they don't think they're doing anything. But when I show them the needle and say, you've got to keep this within 10 millimeters mercury, five above and five below the target, then they can't do it. And they think, well, I don't think anybody could do it. So I'll lay on the floor and do exercises 10 times harder than those and keep it right on the target zone for them so they can see that the old man teaching them is actually in a lot better shape than they are. <laughs> and then they go, okay, it is possible. Mm -hmm. So the point is, is that you always have to tell them what they want to hear. How does getting the garbage out of the diet enhance their ability to perform better and perform longer and have less problems from injuries? And then give them what they need means if you're going to give them exercises and stretches and mobilizations, you have to show them how every one of those applications directly improves something to do with the challenge they're facing or preventing the challenge that they don't want to experience be it again or period or you can write the most scientific programs in the world that nobody does which i used to do for a long time until i realized it wasn't a question of the program it was a question of my coaching ability and my ability to educate the athlete so that they understood the importance of doing what it was that I was teaching them to do. And then it wasn't me just throwing crazy exercises out of them at them. Like I'm pulling them out of a hat or something or giving them the exercises that I like to do. That's as you surely know, one of the biggest problem with coaches and trainers and therapists is that they train everybody exactly how they train. Mm -hmm. And that that's a bad, that's like telling everybody to eat the same diet you eat. Matt Walden. But I think it I think it ties in with something I've come to understand uh, around biological function, which is the concept of attractors. And so, uh, you know, an attractor is where you get stability in in a complex system um, or something that that a complex system is attracted to. Yes. But it's, it is a technical like physics term, basically. Um, and you know the the first time I heard about attractors, it was it was talking about uh, it was a colleague of mine actually talking about attractors and saying that uh, you know the the moon's a good example of an attractor. So when when the moon first hit the Earth as an asteroid, complete chaos reigns for for literally reigns like raining stones for for you know I don't know how 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 long whether it's days weeks months years you know or eons but but basically for for a long period of time there were. Uh, you know, all kinds of meteors circling the Earth in, a, in an orbit. And ultimately, those uh, meteors conglomerated into a single um, planet, like mini planet, called the, which we call the moon, which then went into uh, a, a kind of orbit, a stable orbit with us. And initially, that orbit was not stable. It was very close to the Earth. And it was, you know, how the tides rise when, when it's a full moon. Um, well, you know, the earth was so close that the, the land mass was rising. So it was kind of creating mini earthquakes all the time as, as the, as the moon went around the earth, mm -hmm. but gradually moved out. I think it's, I forget how many miles it is, something like 158,000 miles away from us now. And now it just affects the, uh, the oceans primarily or anything that's water-based like humans yeah. Yeah. life in general. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but is now is now in a complete attractor state. So it's in a stable state. Mm. It hasn't really changed that much for for uh, you know for, for again I don't know the exact uh, duration, but it is in a stable state. So it's not it's not particularly moving away or coming closer anymore. So you know when we of attractor state in the human body, then attractor states are things that we return to uh, that create a kind of sense of homeostasis in us. So, for example, walking is a great, great uh, example of an attractor state um, because it's something that our physiology has evolved with over millions of years, and it's something that balances our body. You know, when we walk, every step results in pretty much every joint in the body moving and therefore stimulating the synovium in every joint in the body and therefore stimulating synovial fluid within the joints. It's kind of a self-oiling mechanism, right? Mm. But also you're using your arms in front of the body and behind the body, the legs in front of the body and behind the body. So you're creating a balance front and back. You're twisting left and right. Okay, your eyes are designed to be on the horizon. So, so you're hardwired, all, all animal life is hardwired to keep the eyes on what's called the optic plane, which is essentially on the horizon. And so what that does is it actually balances out the musculature in the neck, right? So one of the things that the chiropractors have talked about for years, and we talk about in the Czech system as well, is the idea of an atlas dysfunction. Mm-hmm. But one of the best things you can do to correct an atlas dysfunction is to go out for a walk, mm-hmm. right? Because when you go out for a walk, your eyes focus on the horizon. I mean, of course, they're going to look down and they're going to look around and so on and so forth. But but for the largest part of your walk, you're likely to be looking into the distance, reflexively keeping the eyes on that optic plane or the the, uh, the 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 horizon. And and therefore, as you contract the musculature either side of the neck, well, it, it rebalances the neck from perhaps you know some kind of trauma that you've had or some kind of habit that you have when you watch TV or or mm-hmm. lean to the side while you're on the computer. Mm-hmm. But going for a walk will help to rebalance that, mm-hmm. right? I'm not saying it's it's a miracle cure, but but it, that's how the body reorganizes itself and rebalances itself in order that it can maintain function. So walking is a great example of an attractor state for the human body, ah. and any gait-based activity, and indeed you know the primal pattern system that we talk about in the Czech system, yep. you can see those primal patterns as a, as an attractor. You know, humans are designed to be able to squat uh, with good form. They are designed to be able to bend with good form and to twist and to push and to pull and to lunge mm-hmm. and to walk, right? And to run. So, so that's kind of keeping it fairly biomechanical, but it gets it perhaps a bit more complex in a way when you go to, you know, biochemical and to emotional and so on and, and uh, you know, mental and spiritual even. But, but the, again, there's certain attractors that you can look at within those um, fields and, you know, Organic food is an example of an attractor nutritionally because it's it's what our physiology has evolved to um, to thrive on, right? We we haven't evolved to thrive on, I don't know, Hershey's chocolate bars and you know all that kind of stuff. That that's not part of our physiology that that we recognise. But to eat an apple or to eat some steak or stuff that you know is is in its natural status and ideally organic without all the chemicals and pesticides and all the rest of it mm-hmm. which again our livers are not well versed in handling those those uh, new stresses right but but there are you see one of the things i think people often don't understand or don't consider is that 
foods themselves are stressors. You know, they're non-self. So they initiate an immune response pretty much no matter what you eat because it's not part of you, right? It's just like an organ transplant, but you're doing it via the stomach rather than, you know, actually having it surgically implanted. Mm -hmm. uh, if, you put an apple, if you surgically implanted an apple where your kidney is, you, you know, you can have an issue, but, but we eat them the whole time um, and forget that, you know, 80% of our immune system lines the gut to try and protect us from these foreign organisms. Yep. And so, you know, apples, I mean, tomatoes and the nightshade family, they're, they're called the nightshade family because they've got deadly nightshade in them, right? And so our liver has to process that. And some people do that fine, get no issues, but a lot of people get joint pain when they eat the nightshade family. Mm -hmm. There's an example of um, something that, you know, is natural and can be organic and so on, but it can still be a stressor to the system. But the, really the point I'm, I'm angling at is that the, the, you know, even if we were to remove all of the chemicals and all of the sort of um, processed foods and so on, um, then, you know, the body still has plenty to do to survive on just an organic, natural, whole food diet. Yeah. And so, but, but, but it's evolved to handle that. So then we're in a kind of balance and a, a relative homeostasis. Again, assuming we're getting the which is a whole other discussion that relates into again how we how we talk about nutrition in the Czech system and the idea that you know certain people um, you know perhaps uh, you and I with, with lighter skin we probably uh, are likely to have recent ancestry that's from more temperate zones. If we had darker skin, we're probably going to have ancestry from more equatorial zones. And there's very different foodstuffs available in those zones. So that's one way we can think about well what food are we going to do better on and which foods are going to be more stressful to our physiology? Mm. But as you know, there's a lot more complexity to that as well. Um, mm -hmm. But again, if you eat the right balance of foods, make them as natural and whole as, as possible, well, now you're creating an attractor state or a homeostatic environment which your physiology is going to resonate well with. Right, right. Ron Kochavar. How you do one, anything is how you do everything, right? right? It's, it, it, it's all the, it's kind of all the same. And if we're looking for a sort of a solution and we have the wherewithal to start looking inside of ourselves, because our answers are inside of ourselves, our body is incredibly intelligent. It's a self-healing wonder. It wants to be healthy. It wants to be healthy and it yeah. knows how yes. to steer towards health. Mm -hmm. But none of it doesn't happen against resistance. It it doesn't happen by pushing. Right. It happens when we get a solution from our body. It is something that we are pulled towards. Mm -hmm. It's not something that we have to push to uh, uh, to achieve. Right. Mm -hmm. That's a really interesting concept. It's. Uh, I think it's the. I mean, it, it's the concept of you know, knowing whether or not we are sort of doing the right thing right um, am I doing what I what I was brought here to do yeah um, and I think I said this the last time we talked as well but I you know I had this teacher that that used to say it doesn't matter how effectively or efficiently you may be going north if your mission in life is to go south, yeah, you are going the wrong way, right? Yeah, and that starts to 
that's that starts to uh, open up a lot of conflictive uh, type of experiences in people's bodies because the minute we start listening to our heart and turn away from what our rational mind is telling us, it does not take very long before in the middle that is going to be filled with a lot of cognitive dissonance. Mm -hmm. It's like, this is what I was told. This is what I feel. Shit. Um, what am I going to do? It's going to rip you in half. Well, fuck it. I'm going to do what they told me to do. Yeah. And the more we do that, it pulls us farther and farther away from what our body is saying. No, no, no. This come over here. Right. And yeah, that's a, it's hard, you know, it, because in order to listen, we have to stop. We have to get silent. We have to tune into our own breath. All things that we are not encouraged to do. Right. Right. We are encouraged to achieve. We are encouraged to be ambitious. We are encouraged to have some sort of a goal, some sort of a motivation. And by default, we end up comparing ourselves to the people around us that have the same goals, the same ambitions, the same motivations. And if we let that run and we let it have control, because, you know, because he who dies with the most toys wins, right? Then we're going to find ourselves achieving goal after goal after goal and getting unhappier with every single one. Because after we achieve that goal, the oh, I mean, yeah, we may be we may be happy for ten minutes, but ultimately, then the question is going to be, okay, now what? What's the next goal? Yeah. And there's no real there's no real enjoyment in achievement because we haven't been allowed to. And there's and we just you know we live in these sort of expectations. And, you know, a lot of that stuff gets quieted down or quelled if we decide to stop and make a decision based on what our body is actually telling us. And I don't, and I don't think we're not, we're not really taught that our body has that kind of intelligence to it. Wisdom. Yeah. So many times I've had conversations with clients who have been injured frequently, they'll, they'll get to this point of, of disbelief or loss of faith. Right. But, it, but it's not even a loss of faith. It's just they don't have it. And my response is I have to remind them, like, I want you to know your body wants to be healthy. You just have to get out of the way. Let it heal. Give it the tools it needs and then let it do its thing, which takes time. People aren't real good with giving a lot of time. And I'll explain that to them, like, like the body wants to achieve equilibrium. It wants to achieve health, homeostasis, mm -hmm. balance. It wants those things. It'll constantly work towards those things. Mm -hmm. How successful it is, is how, how interrupted um, that process is by your choices, your mind choices to go out and keep doing instead of letting rest. And mm -hmm. also the tools you give it. If you're eating shit food, it'd be hard to grow a new tendon or not grow a new tendon, but it'd be hard to repair an injured tendon. It's going to be hard mm -hmm. to have muscle damage be repaired when you're, if you're 
stressing about your weight and you're constantly yeah. under eating or eating yeah. empty calories or shitty food. Yeah. I mean, just being stuck in any sort of dogmatic thought, like you talked about earlier, can create a, a stress response. Right. Which over time will start to create a sort of a low load inflammatory um, environment in our bodies. Yep. And the literature, the scientific literature is very, very clear on what happens to healing times in high stress environments. Our bodies heal at around 60% of the rate mm-hmm. as in a non-stress environment. Yeah. So, you you know, you're close to cutting down half your half your healing time. Yeah. Yeah. Just by getting, letting go of the, the dogma, Mm. the, I think it's the, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, being willing to say that maybe, maybe my body knows what my body needs right now better than all of these experts mm-hmm. that keep telling me mm-hmm. what I need, yeah. right? This happens cons- this in any, any physical therapist is going to have this experience as well. They have a patient come in, they've seen any number of providers in the past, um, maybe several, several doctors, right? Any, any provider you go in and see is going to have their own take on what's going on mm-hmm. with a, with a patient. Mm-hmm. So they've seen a number of providers gotten maybe some good advice, maybe not some good advice. Patient doesn't know. Mm-hmm. All they know is that they've, they've seen a number of people, their condition hasn't changed. And now they come into PT's office and most PTs are going to run very contrary to what, typical physicians are going to have people do. Um, and now they're even more confused. They're like, right. well, you're telling me that I can do this. I've got these people telling me that I can't do that. Then I've got this, this physician that's telling me that I need to have surgery. I got a second opinion and that surgeon said I didn't need to have surgery. Yep. Yep. And now they're just confused. And every PT has had that, had that happen probably a number of times. Usually what I do with those people is then ask them, what do you think you need? Mm. And probably 50% of the time, those patients will say, well, you're the expert. Right. I'm defaulting to you. That's right here. And I'm like, no. Actually, you are. You are. Your body (laughs) is the expert. Yep. Right. Your body wants to heal. Sometimes we need to give it, we need to, we need to give it a shove mm-hmm. in the right direction to start breaking a lot of patterns. Yep. Right. Those patterns are usually unconsciously driven. Almost always they are originated in our, in our minds, mm-hmm. usually our unconscious mind. Right. But your body wants to get better. So, I know at some point during this whole process that you've been seeing all these providers and hearing all these different stories, at some point, something inside you said, 
this is what I need. What was that voice? What did that voice tell you? And I'll sit with them and I'll break it down until they have that moment Hmm. where, you know, like, well, I kind of figure I need to do this. Great. And that is where we will start. Interesting. Yeah. You know, Nathan Haas. Really what it comes down to is you have this like the biggest rate limiting factor is how are you cognitively under stress? And if you have life stresses, if you have money stresses, if you have not enough sleep, partner stresses, like there's all these things that it's like, you know, if you look at it from zero to a hundred, if, if, if stress for the race because you overthought it is here, stress for your relationship, now you're at 40 out of 100, right? 50 out of 100 from something else. And now add 45 from the effort that you've already done in the race, you're at like 95 out of 100. So are you going to get much more squeeze out of what you can do? Because you can only push so hard. Yeah. But if you're actually sort of like open and feeling in control in general, it, or it gives you... a yeah, I'd probably explain this a little. Well, poorly. in control, but I, I would almost, I, I understand your concept. And I think I'm sure we agree here, but I would argue, or I would, I would submit, offer, I'll say, that actually, it sounds to me like you're actually not really trying to control your one minute's efforts. You're, you're actually surrendering, and releasing control. Right? The old, like you started off saying, I wanted to control threshold. I want to control those numbers. I want to control precisely. I'm doing three by twenty at four hundred twenty watts or whatever. That's my input and. Only if I do the 420 by three by 20 minute durations, will I know that I'm good enough to raise my threshold. The next week I expect to be able to do 330 or 430 or whatever, right? But by releasing, by surrendering, by recognizing how little control we actually have, which is something I think most humans really struggle with, but you gotta be real, man. Can you look at this wave that we're riding, this river, this raging river of life that we're on right now. I mean, look at COVID as one small example. Like, how much of our lives do we actually control? And if you have the illusion that doing more threshold is going to give you some iron grip over whether you're going to win a bike race, you're in fantasy land, man. Like, you can do all the thresholds from here to Mars and show up and someone else can just show up to the line and just whack your ass because they're just better than you. Yeah. Or they're on the sauce. Or they slept more. We can name 900 other reasons, but the fact is like, we have so little, anyway, I, I think what you're saying is in some ways, disagree with me if you, if you feel like I'm speaking for you incorrectly, but I think you're saying in some ways we are better served. It seems like you've relaxed because you're flowing with the rhythm more. you're feeling your body more and what it needs in training. You're not adhering to a schedule, which is more towards control. I would argue. I'm looking for less extremes and I'm looking for more subtle feeling and feeling again, like every time that I finish a ride and I feel like I was in control of that ride, mm. this doesn't mean that like in the one minute effort I'm just sitting there pedaling pretty and going easy. No, yeah. no, no. It's yeah. It's a hundred percent, but there's a different way to express that. And I think okay. yeah, surrendering is yeah. an absolutely awesome way to say that. It's like there's, there's a great podcast going on at the moment. It's called um, so Malcolm Gladwell has done it, uh, and it's 
the story of the African-American sprinters mm-hmm. that at the Mexico City Olympics raised their fist. Uh-huh. And it's an amazing story. And, uh, it's called like this Speed City or something like that. Um, and Speed City was the university that they went to. That was sort of their like uh, name that people sort of nicknamed the university because all of the best runners in the United States coming out of this and there were all the gold medal winners and this coach had this theory that actually you couldn't force your run. Anyone that was actually trying to run faster by running harder went slower and then he identified and he basically cherry-picked all these athletes that either had this natural flow or inversely runners that were going fast but they were trying too hard and he taught them like different mental cues it was like fish lips try less it was literally try less and I want you to be running with a deadpan face like as soon as you grimace yeah you're actually not in control of the effort anymore the effort's controlling you Mm. and he's more or less saying that you need to submit to the run and let the training and everything that we've been preparing for actually express itself to its ultimate yeah. Ending. Yeah. Um, Interesting. And I, I really resonated with that because I'm like, that's how I've always felt with cycling. It's like as soon as I've ever tried to go out and, you know, if you ever gave me three by twenty, and if I felt shit after the second twenty, mm-hmm. I just go home. I'd never force the third one. And I think sometimes you'd be like, oh, Nathan, did you go too hard on the first two? I'm like, no, I just didn't feel right. Mm-hmm. Like doing another one today did not feel like it served me. So I've I've always maybe been a little bit more like intuitive. Um, you know, my partner at times has called me lazy, but I have to also <laughs> see that too, right? And, and challenge the ego to actually say, well, maybe I'm being, maybe yeah. I'm actually being lazy. And then, um, yeah. you know, that relationship with yourself grows because it is important to have a devil's advocate. Um, but uh, I think ultimately, every time I have progressed. Um, on an internal level or become more at peace with everything and it's going to be how it's going to be. I, I remember before before probably one of my biggest results on the road, it was Amstel Gold. Mm-hmm. Um, I was fourth. Uh, and it was the it was my goal race for my entire career. It was always the race that I was trying to win. It was my white whale. And you gave me this really weird advice and it was like exactly true. It was like Nathan, you need to race tomorrow like the race has actually already happened. Like you need to treat it as though whatever result you end up getting is the one that you are always going to get. Basically submit to the race and your best will come because if you try to control it yourself, you won't race on instinct. And if you're not racing on instinct, you're reactive, which is slower than the situation. And if you're slower than the situation, you're forcing, if you're forcing, you're not efficient, you're going to be in the wrong place and you're not going to get your best result. You know, I've got all these things in my life now that it's like I've just got so much more balance. And weirdly, I'm at like 69, 70 kilos, which is what I was fighting yes. to get to for like fighting to get to for years. Yeah. Not making sense how I couldn't get there anymore. Yeah. And I've stopped trying, so I've actually surrendered to steal your concept again. Mm. Surrendered. But because I'm not over-pushing my body and I'm not pushing through the days where my body says, dude, what the fuck are you doing? Mm. And I'm not, and also I'm not forced to push through those days like you are in the world too. So it's not just about choice. It's also about I'm not in a scenario where 
I'm forced to put myself into that gray area of health anymore where it's not black and white, like a broken bone. It's just you just feel terrible and you don't know why. Yeah. I don't have to do that anymore. And my body says, I'll happily get lighter because we're healthy. Yeah. I don't feel like there's a drought. I don't feel like there's a famine. Yeah. Um, so I'm not going to hold on to everything. I'm going to do what makes me actually feel a little bit faster on this climb that we're doing a lot of times. Like, it's interesting that we're doing the same climb a lot of times, bro, but, you know, I'm, I'm going to help you out. I'm going to get a little bit lighter. Um, and, and also not that weight is a rate determining factor, but it can be a rate limiting factor, right? Yeah. It definitely limits also, your ability. Yeah. It um, can be, yeah. yeah. But uh, it's just very interesting when you put yourself into a different environment or, or, or the one thing in a different environment that you were trying so hard to get all of a sudden kind of just comes for free and naturally. Mm. It's only natural to start questioning what is good and what is not good for you. And, and I know, I know that riding Grand Tours is, is definitely taking time off your life. Yeah. Like it just is. It just is. It's an amazing accomplishment. And when you complete one, you've got like another gear that I don't think you can get any other way, maybe. But I, I totally agree. My, I had that experience, but it comes at such a price. Michael Holt. I want to work with a certain kind of person, somebody who is prepared to work, you know, who understands that the healing path is not unicorns and rainbows. Mm-hmm. It's hard work. It's confronting things you've successfully avoided. It's, you know, you need some tenacity and you have to be willing to look in the back of the closet, you know, dig everything up and it's totally worth doing, but it's not easy to do. It's why most people don't do it. Mm. But I want to work with people who are at a point in their life where they're ready to become something new. Mm -hmm. And there's always another corner of the closet to shine the light in. That's it's cool about it yeah yeah right whether it's your own closet or your clients mm-hmm. but looking it's it's such a fascinating process when you get to know someone really well because you start to feel their edges yeah and then you give them a little light to show them what they're missing right or a little push toward the edge not yeah. too hard not right. too hard right just a little loving <laughs> yeah pushing the lower back <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a gift actually that more people have than they probably than probably realize. Yeah. But it's I mean it's Paul's gift. Mm-hmm. One of his many gifts, right? Mm-hmm. He can look at a person and see all the things, all the crazy shit that he can see and immediately pick up on their whatever, their tension that they're trying to resolve, their internal friction. Yeah, and that's a byproduct of this of that practice of stillness of yeah. of, you know, cultivating that magnifying glass on your own being. Mm. Because until you can see yourself that way, you'll never be able to see anybody else that way. Mm-hmm. And that can be offered as a gift, that that level of clarity. Or you can reduce somebody to tears in two sentences. <laughs> right. The choice is yours, but right. there, there are consequences to the choice you make. Yes, of course. And Paul, to be fair, I think it was Nicole Devaney who told me that he filleted her soul in one of the classes he taught with her. So he has the capacity to do that, but I'm sure he he did it in a way that ended up changing the course of her life by several degrees. Yeah, sometimes the sword that comes from the teacher is a loving thrust right (laughs) through your intestines. (laughs) But you got to make sure that the person that you're eviscerating is prepared for that. 
Yeah. You know, not everybody is. Right. Or how can they be, but maybe robust enough to survive the attack. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or the dissection. You know, if you look at it through the lens of traditional, like, let's say, Buddhist meditation retreat, the entirety of the retreat is done in noble silence. Because, like you said, we collectively agree to just do away with all the social pleasantries that we maintain when we're in, you know, ordinary reality. Say, good morning, you acknowledge someone's presence, you hold a door for them. But we collectively agree that we're not going to do that, not because we want to be rude, but because we want to allow for this kind of upwelling of insights or epiphanies or moments of clarity. And somebody could be on the verge of some kind of insight. And then all of a sudden someone comes in and says, hey, that was really great this morning. Huh? What do you think about that? It's mm-hmm. like it can feel very invasive when mm-hmm. when you touch the depths that we touch. You know, you don't really feel like having mm-hmm. meaningless side chats. You know, you'd rather just stay in that space of stillness. Mm. So, yeah, it's powerful and it's uh, it's totally worth doing for a period of time. Okay, so one concept that we've touched upon that I wanted to kind of draw out a bit or expand upon is that when you cultivate stillness, when you learn to direct your elephant and you begin to calm to a place of real stillness. For me, this is an essential tool for a coach because the quieter you are, the more receptive you can be, just as you said, to what the client needs, right? And then when you're teaching them, it's from a shaman, to use shamanic language for a moment, it's the concept of the hollow bone, Yeah. right? You're not even really teaching, you're more of a vehicle for what comes to be pretty esoteric for a moment. What what comes from the universe? Yeah. What chan- what comes through you're just a conduit. Yeah. Your channel, right? And there are times where I find myself teaching and I definitely drop into that state. Yeah. It's like information just flowing through me. And that's where I feel I do my best work, hopefully make move the dial the most for the client. Totally, man. Because I'm there's not, times where you're probably speaking to a room of people or speaking to the person in front of you and all of a sudden you're like, holy shit, I need to take notes on this because I'm not the one saying this. <laughs> yeah. Something way smarter than me is speaking yes. through me for a moment right now. Exactly. Yeah, and you just continue to allow that to happen. Yeah. And if you maintain the daily disciplines and habits that kind of facilitate that or create that capacity, mm. then that happens more and more often and humility grows Yes. Because you recognize that this is not me. Yeah. This ain't me. Yeah. You're the hollow bone. I'm just making room for it to happen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Making space to allow healing to occur. Yeah. Yeah. My, my mission is to offer um, contemplative practice, meditation, um, cultivating sensitivity uh, bringing about a transcendent experience um, to specifically men who might turn their nose at those topics mm-hmm. because I think that 
in pop culture, there's maybe this view of meditation as like man bun, granola eater, you know, burning man, hippy dippy. Mm-hmm. And a lot of guys, you know, like tough guys are very quick to just say like, that's not me, you know, but that's not my experience of meditation at all. And I think anybody who applies themselves diligently to the practice will find that it calls forth and requires you know, a real warrior spirit. Like, it's a battle to sit still and wrangle your own mind. Yeah, <laughs> you right. Know? Control there, the wandering elephant. Yeah, there's nothing uh, yeah. passive about it. It requires mm-hmm. heroic effort, determination, mm-hmm. discipline, you know. Uh, it's totally worth doing, but I offer the, you know, test to any man who tells me or, or feels that spiritual practice is just lightweight, you know, fluff. Yeah, if it's fluff, if it's fluff, then go on a three-day retreat mm-hmm. and see what that requires of you. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look back through the ages, you know, the monastics, the warriors were. You know, the monks were the badasses. And I'm on a mission to make meditation badass again because I think it is badass. And I think the more people, especially men nowadays, who would summon the courage to just sit still with themselves and uh, understand themselves at deeper levels and heal, you know, traumas that they're carrying, Mm. the world will be a, a safer, stronger, more beautiful place. Agreed. Yeah, because it comes down to the individual. I mean, people nowadays are so woke that they want to topple capitalism or transform the entire government. But let's start a little smaller than that. You know, let's take a look at the man in the mirror and see. Right. Um, are you taking good care of yourself? Mm. You know, are you aware of how you're feeling? Are you aware of how you feel influences your behavior and maybe unskillful ways? You know, if you want to change the world, you can, but it starts with you. It starts with you. Yeah. Yeah. Epilogue. I want to share a few brief thoughts about the inception of cycling and alignment. The purpose of this podcast is for me to get three and a half decades of hard fought lessons out of my skull. Some of them through my own research and reading, some of them I've been taught through mentors and colleagues, other riders, other racers, a lot of it, a massive amount of it was simply trial and error through my own stubborn methods. And that has amassed a certain amount of experience and knowledge, understanding. And while I think I'm reasonably smart and I know quite a bit of stuff, I want to make it clear that the opinions that I share on this podcast are belief systems built on what I've experienced to this point. And that some of those opinions are pretty strong, but they are also loosely held. That is to say that if I learn more about a topic and have a greater level of clarity or understanding, then my old belief systems will be abandoned and I will now operate under that newfound knowledge. 
So I'm not here to tell people all the things that I know. I'm here to explain what I've learned to this point. And there's a big difference. Also, that is the intent when I discuss things on the pod with guests is to learn from them and have a discourse. Because if we can't have a discourse as adults, then we've lost one of the basic tenets of modern society. Even if we disagree, we ought to be able to, in most cases, shake hands and walk away. Because after all, this is sport we're talking about. And while sport is training for life, it's nothing to get too upset over. The purpose of the podcast is to help me help other people and specifically to help them actualize their highest potential by illuminating a path that enables alignment with their truth, their intent, and their coherence. That's really the end goal. So I'm grateful for your listening. My intent is also not to be clear to gain an audience or become popular or gain social status in any way. I don't care about that stuff. That said, if you feel an episode that you have heard will help someone you know, please share it with them. That helps us reach the end goal, which is to help more people. Thank you for listening. I'm grateful for your time and attention. Blessings.